Good morning. It's good to see you again. It's good to be home with our family. <laughs> uh, I don't just mean my little tribe, but the family of God here. We, we really consider you all family, and we missed you. And we want to bring greetings from the Saints at Waterbury Christian Fellowship in Connecticut. Uh, many of you met a number of them who came down to the Workers and Elders Conference that we hosted here in South Florida in 2005. It's where we were introduced to the two assemblies, and they've hosted one of the Workers and Elders Conferences in 09, I believe it was. And um, some of you have been up to the Bucket uh, uh, Bible Intensive Training Week that they have. Uh, a number of folks from there come down there, and Jeff Sulo and gang say hello to those of you who they know. And um, I may be forgetting someone else, but uh, they really uh, uh, were excited to even see a remnant of the group from down here. So anyways, uh, we send greetings for them and, and from us as well. Well, if you will turn with me to the book of Job. I'd like to read a few verses as we begin this morning. <clears throat> After I ask you a question. And we're going to read, first of all, from Job 9, 11 and 12. And my question is this. If you wake up on a morning like this, I thought of this as I was driving to the chapel. It's all cloudy and overcast. But if you wake up on a morning like this and the sun is not shining, what does that mean? Does that mean the sun is gone? Does that mean that it has ceased to shine? Does it mean that the properties and attributes of the sun have somehow changed and it no longer shines? Does it mean that the clouds have somehow overpowered the sun? Or does it simply mean, I can't see the sun today? Now perhaps there was a day in the past where that would be a confusing physical question to ask, where people thought that uh, you know everything revolved around the earth and there was a lot of confusion about the atmosphere in which we live, right? But, but it's a very good illustration of our study today. See, because the question is asked, or the statement is made by Job in chapter 9-11. It says, If he goes by me, speaking of God, I do not see him. If he moves past, I do not perceive him. If he takes away, who can hinder him? Or who can say to him, What are you doing? Isaiah would say in chapter 45 of his prophecy truly you are god who hide yourself O god of israel the savior there are some times in life where god just seems to be hiding and the circumstances of life seem to cloud over our perception of him and it's hard to know how to deal with those things and god has been gracious to give us a book the book of job to try to help us sort through those times. Now, I'll confess to you, I don't, prof I don't profess to be one who is an expert on suffering. As I look at my life compared to so many others who have truly suffered, I feel uh, a little sheepish on the subject. But all of us have those times where we wonder, where is God and what's going on? And I pray that today, as we look at this book together, that God will give us some hope and some encouragement to hang on during those times where we just can't see where He is. 
And so, if you'll join me now in turning back to chapter 1, I'd like to read the beginning of the book. It's very interesting when you consider this book. You know, when it comes to what God included in the Bible, it's not a history book about all the civilizations on the earth. It's not a science book. It's, it's a history of things that God wanted us to know about his dealings with man in this realm. And so in his wisdom, he chose two chapters to talk about the incredible work of creation in the whole universe out of nothing. He takes the next nine chapters to cover all of human history from Adam until Abraham. 2,000 years of history or more in nine quick chapters. And yet, we come to this book of Job and he takes 42 chapters to give us a glimpse into a short season in the life of this man, Job. Now, God is a very efficient God. And He doesn't waste words. And so that tells me something about this book. As much as we may be ignorant of it, as much as we may be afraid of it, as much as we may be afraid of not being able to answer the questions that are raised in the book, it tells me God has something He wants to say. And by His grace, I, again, I just pray that we will hear from Him today. And whatever is going on in your life, for someone that you know we will receive encouragement from him. So before we read in Job chapter 1, will you join me in prayer as we commit this time to him? Our Father, I want to thank you personally for the word of God. It is an incredible, sometimes mysterious, hard to understand revelation from you to us. But we thank you that Although you don't answer all of our questions, you've given us all that you felt that we needed to know in order to understand you, in order to have all the help that we need, not only for this life, but as we prepare for the life to come. And we thank you that through the Word of God we do learn that we can have a living hope that goes beyond the grave, that is undefilable, eternal and is waiting in heaven for those of us who know Christ Jesus as our Savior. And so, Father, with this great hope, we give you thanks today. We, we ask for your wisdom to dissect the various parts of this book and to get a glimpse of how to understand the mysteries of life when we just can't see to be able to trace your hand in the circumstances around us. And so we commit this time to you. I pray that you would... Uh, 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 help me to only say the things that you would have me to say and that they would be clear and understandable and honoring to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. And so the book begins. Job 1, 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also, his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 
3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys in a very large household so that his man, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. And his sons would go and feast in their houses each on his appointed day and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And thus Job did regularly. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. And then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man and one who fears God and shuns evil? And Satan answered the Lord and said, Ta, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Job went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen are plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them when, when the Sabians raided them and took them away. And indeed they've killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and raided the camels and took them away. Yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people. And they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And then Job arose, and he tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Again there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. 
but stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a potsherd with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die! But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. For they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. When they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted their voices and wept. And each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. And so they sat down with him on the ground, seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. Oh God, we, we do ask your blessing upon the reading of your word once again. Enlighten it to our hearts and lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Job. Someone may ask the question, why even study this book? We're going through Genesis, right? I mean, uh, uh, there's a lot of books between Genesis and Job. But if you know how the Bible has been laid out for us and it's grouped together, not in chronological order, sometimes I wish it was, but rather by the types of books, right? The first five books are the books of the law that Moses wrote. And uh, a lot of it is history. And then following those books, we have a group of 12 more books of history. Going from the time that Moses passed away till Joshua took over, until he led them into the promised land, and the, and the time of the judges came to pass for 450 years. And after the judges, the people cried out for a king, and they, and they, they had three kings under a united kingdom. But then, through the disobedience of the Lord's people, the, the, the kingdom was divided in two, and, and two kingdoms reigned side by side over the Lord's people. And finally, each of those nations were taken away into captivity. And that's where the historical books end. And then we have this section we're in now, which is the poetic or, his, or wisdom books. And most of them are poetic. We have Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. And much of that was written by Solomon and the Psalms by David and many others. And, and then you have the books of prophecy, 17 of them, the major prophets and the minor prophets. And the only difference between them is the, the major or minor amounts of paper each of them used in their writing, right? All of them inspired by God. But each of those prophets wrote during the time of those historical books that we already had gone through. And so really to go chronologically, you've got to go all over the place. And really that's where Job fits in. Because we understand, although it doesn't exactly tell us the time frame, the culture of the day hints to us that this is in the time after the flood when the people were scattered around the world in many nations, but before God called Abraham and began to single out for himself one family, one nation 
out of the world. Because there are allusions to the, the flood and, and, and to the work that God had done in the world overall, but, but there's no mention of the Jews. There's no mention of the tabernacle or of the, 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 the exodus from Egypt for, for the Lord's people. There's no mention of the temple. And, and, and the, the kind of scene that we see here as we read in chapter 1 of, of Job going as, as the patriarch of his home and offering sacrifices on behalf of his own family, that's the kind of time period that Abraham lived in, in this patriarchal period, they call it. And <clears throat> yet some of the nations are mentioned there. We have the Temanite, uh, which uh, hints of the, the Mount Teman area there down in Edom where the city of Petra is in that region in the world even today. Um, we also have the very long life of Job. It says he lived at the end of the book an extra 140 years after the incidences that were here. And that kind of lifespan it fits the time period that we're talking about. And so so we just finished studying the first part of the book of Genesis. We're about to go into the life of Abraham. And so it's fitting that we would take time out in our chronological study then to take a look at this book. And I think based on its content, it's an important thing for us to take time out to do because all of us are faced with suffering in this world. <clears throat> as far back as I can remember watching my dad going through some, uh, I forget what, channel it was he used to get it was either the history channel or some of these things people ask uh, questions and have debates over why is it that we have suffering in the world to begin with why do bad things happen to good people it's just not the way our mind thinks it ought to be so we wrestle with some heavy questions and the beautiful thing about this book is that God begins to go and take a look at this man's life and he pulls back the curtain between this world that we see with our eyes and the spiritual world to give us a glimpse of what's going on behind the scenes. And how helpful that is, isn't it? To help make sense of the overall picture. You know, <clears throat> some people believe that no, no one's exactly sure who wrote this book, right? Was it Job? And if so, how did he come to find out about this going on behind the scenes? Obviously, if it was Job who wrote the book, then, then God must have come back later after the fact and said, Here's, let me tell you what was going on. But there's a lot of people who believe, one of the Jewish traditions is that it was Moses. And uh, 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 he wrote much of the things from that history, so that would make sense. But some people say, so it would suggest Solomon because those who can study other languages and appreciate the poetry of the language say that this is one of the most beautiful books of poetry ever written. And it is on level with, if not surpassing, Solomon's writings in the rest of the books of poetry. And he touches on similar subjects. You know, I was looking at Ecclesiastes side by side with some of this. And uh, interesting, I just had a conversation with Brother Ron the other day about something from the same chapter where he talks about the vanity of life and how whether you're rich or poor, or famous or obscure, there's an evil that comes upon us all. And we all have a common end, death. And we can't make sense of when or how all this is going to happen. He says, For the race is not to the swift, or the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the men of understanding, nor favor 
to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. For man also does not know his time, and like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare, so the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. This wisdom I have seen under the sun, and it seemed great to me. And one of the things that I thought was so common between Solomon's writings and what we see here is this. Over and over, Solomon mentions the vanity of life under the sun. If the only glimpse that we have is the cloudy day, how do we make sense of it? As he looked at life under the sun, the S-U-N, out there, he said, it's vanity. We're all going to the same place. What's the sense in all the things that we acquire, all the good things that we do, if we're all going to the same place? Even the animals go to the grave. But see, when we take a look beyond the sun and we bring God into the picture, it begins to make some sense. And that's what this book does, is it's going to pull back that curtain that Solomon couldn't quite see beyond, but by faith had to accept. What so often we feel that we have to accept. In Job, God pulls back the curtain and says, let's take a look. And if you've ever written, read a book like that, it, it's gripping. This book is that compelling. I'll never forget reading the book, This Present Darkness, written about the spiritual struggle of, of people on this earth. And they would go back and forth from part of the chapter looking at the actual goings-on of circumstances and then step back and say, well, this is what was going on in, the, in heaven and in the battle between God and Satan and between God's faithful angels and, and, and Satan's unfaithful angels. And I remember I couldn't put the book down. But he's just mirroring what God did. God said, let's take a look. So let's take a look. What do we see? Number one, why do bad things happen to good people? Job was a good man. Notice God's commentary on Job here in verse 1 of the book. There was a man in the land of Uz or Uz whose name was Job, and the man was blameless, upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. You know, we sometimes sing a song, I'm in right, out right, upright, downright, happy all the time. Right? And I thought, you know, that's kind of like what God has done here. He's kind of, kind of given a summary explanation of the person of Job. He's in right, blameless. His heart was right before God. Anything that he had done or known about that was wrong in his heart, he had, had dealt with and now was blameless. His conscience was clear. It's outright towards others. He was an upright person. He lived a morally upright life before everyone around him. And so as people looked on, they could see an upright moral life that he was living. It says... In right, outright, upright. It gets confusing hearing the same twice, doesn't it? But towards God, it says he feared God. He had the proper reverence toward God, giving him the, the first place in his heart and life. And then, but beyond that, it says he shunned evil. And can I just make a comment about this? I was trying to get a grasp for the, 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 the tense of this passage, but it says, if yours says eschewed, the idea is shunning or turning away from. And you know, that doesn't mean that he lived under a rock and there was no evil around him and so he was able to live a, a, an innocent life. But rather, in the face of evil, he would turn away. And isn't that a good example for you and for me? Our world is full of evil and we have a choice to make of whether or not we will turn away and shun the evil in order to draw near to God. This was Job. And we see it played out in his life. God had blessed him. This is another... Uh, 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 um, validation of the time frame of this book and that the, the way that God rewarded many of the people in the patriarchal times for their obedience to Him was prosperity in this world. But you and I, we don't live in that time frame, do we? The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1 that we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. 
we have a spiritual blessing from God in the heavenly realms and it's not necessarily blessing of God's prosperity on this earth. And when we go to look at the, t- the, the, the testimony and the counsel of Job's friends, I tell you what, they get caught up in that prosperity mentality and think that, hey, if you were really pleasing to God, God would be blessing you materially. And people want to tell us that today too. But it's just not so, according to God's word. But he was prospering. He, he was the greatest, it says, of all the people of the East in that day. And he would go and he would draw, it says that he would make these sacrifices on behalf of his children faithfully, regularly, with sincerity and devotion to the Lord. He was trying to guard his family. And it just shows in practical terms the working out of this heart that he had towards God. And yet in spite of that, look what happens to him. It says that one day, while his sons and daughters were feasting, in Job's words, a few chapters over, he says, the thing that I feared, chapter 3, verse 25, the thing that I greatly feared has come upon me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. As a parent, there's any number of things that come to our minds as the things that would happen to our children, running out into the street, being kidnapped by someone and horrible things happening to them or, or, or accidents, all kinds of things. But to have them come to pass, what horror. But it happened to Job. But we have the benefit of seeing that there was more than just an unfortunate set of circumstances. There in the spiritual realm, as we look in verse 6, as God pulled back that curtain, so to speak, it says that the God called the sons of God, all the angelic beings that God had created were called to appear before him and Satan was one of them. Yes, he'd already disobeyed God. He'd already been cast out of heaven from as a permanent res- residence in service to the Lord. And, and yet he was summoned and he came and presented himself before the Lord. And yes, he had to give account to the Lord. Where have you come from? Well, going generic answer, not trying to give any information. You don't have to, right? Uh, going to and fro, just looking, looking around. But God said... Have you considered my servant Job? And he repeats his testimony. He's blameless, upright, fearing God, shunning evil. And so Satan makes this dare. Let me add him. We'll see how much he really loves you and not just the gifts you're giving him. And so God gives him permission. I don't understand that. But God doesn't ask us to understand it as far as agreeing with it or wanting it to be so but rather just to understand that's what he did. In his sovereignty, he chose to do that. But you know, something that that I don't want to escape our notice. It says here in verse 10, notice, Satan is accusing God of something that you and I should appreciate. As Job walked in obedience to God, it says that God had made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he had on every side so that Satan couldn't touch him. Isn't that an encouragement to you? You know, in the body of Christ, we have that same blessing. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 talks about the blessing upon a home when a believer is there as a family. And so he says, as long as your unbelieving spouse is willing to stay married to you, let them stay. There is a blessing and protection upon them, a hedge, if you will, by their association with you. And in the assembly of God, we have that kind of hedge around us spiritually. And that's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he says that when there is someone who is resistant, 
who calls themselves a brother, but insists on walking in sin, put them out. Turn them over to Satan, it says, for the destruction of their flesh, that they might repent and come back to him. Because as long as we do nothing, they are sliding under the radar, if you will, and not really allowing the consequences of their sin to fully come upon them. And so God calls us to minister one to another to make sure that we're all walking with God. And when we're not, you claim the name of Christ. He says, turn them over to Satan. This is the kind of thing Satan wants to do to you, to me. It's a dreadful place to be. But Job wasn't living in disobedience. But the Lord turned him over to Satan. So you can touch all that he has, but not his person. And so this great tragedy, one after another, he lost all of his possessions, he lost his children. But in the midst of it all, praise God, to have an attitude like Job, he tore his robe, verse 20, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Did Job know God? He did. And he was willing to trust God. Now as time went on, it became harder. And we see this in the lives of those who have chronic ongoing troubles. What we can accept at one stage when it doesn't go away becomes very difficult. This happens to missionaries who go out and we need to pray for our brother Tim and Sister Yoli as they go. It's one thing to go on a short-term mission trip. You can consider your little deprivations of your niceties for a short period of time as a mere sacrifice, but in your mind you know I'm going back home. I can sleep in my bed. But when you're in a strange land amongst a different culture, long-term, it can be hard. And as time went on, what does Job ask? Chapter 3 Job finally opens his mouth after seven days of his friends being there with him, not knowing what to say. Praise God, they tried to be there to comfort him and we need to be there for one another. And they didn't know what to say. It's a good time then to keep your mouth closed, right? They saw his grief was very great. But then, chapter 3, verse 11, seven times over, we hear that question. Why? Why did I not die at birth? Why didn't I perish when I came out of the womb? Why did the knees receive me? Why, 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 why? It's a good question, and we want to know the answer. But God didn't tell Job why. Now, suggestions were made, weren't they? If you're familiar with the rest of the book, you notice that Eliphaz begins to speak in chapter 4. He comes to him, and he says, Listen, you know, I've seen in my observation, verse 8, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. You reap what you sow, Job. You must have done something wrong because now God's judging you because this evil has come upon you. You're reaping what you sow. Well, that is a principle in Scripture. But does that mean that every circumstance equals the application of that particular principle? We see here, no. Eliphaz says in verse 13, In disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night, while I was sleeping, these thoughts came to me. And they reaffirmed his thinking. But are we going to put our observations from our limited view of life 
from our dreams and strange ideas on a par with God's Word? Oh, don't let's not do that. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of destruction. So Job responds and he says, listen, I understand these things. Yes, that's true, but he tries to defend himself and say, I can't think of anything I've done wrong. Have I sinned? I love this. Chapter 6, verse 24. He says, teach me and I will hold my tongue. Cause me to understand wherein I have erred. Verse, chapter 7, verse 20. Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? He says, Lord, I don't understand. Uh, yes, the arrows of your wrath, anger, something have come against me and I see that it must be from you. How else is there any explanation? But he says, I don't understand. Teach me. And you know, brothers and sisters, I just want to encourage you with this. God has beseeched us to pray. I talk to people sometimes about prayer and they say, well, I don't pray about those things. Those are just the small things. I wait for the big things to talk to God. But you know, he says, casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He wants us to draw near. He wants us to pour out our hearts to him. He already knows these things, but somehow in the pouring out of our hearts like Job, we're able also to receive from him. And this is the attitude that he had. And I want, I need to be careful because as I, as I say this, it needs to be qualified, right? Uh, we need to have the attitude of Job that says, Lord, teach me because I want to hear what you have to say. He's not afraid of our questions. David is very bold in the Psalms to say, Lord, how long? How long are you going to hide your face? How long am I going to cry out to you and you don't do nothing about the evil that's coming against me? But see, this is the attitude that David had. It's even spelled out for us in the book of Habakkuk, which oh, I really don't have time to go into. <clears throat> but the principle... I want to share with you. Habakkuk was a prophet in the time when the people were disobedient and, and, and the prophet was crying out for the Lord to do something as, the, as the, the Chaldeans were approaching to attack them. The Babylonians were coming near and they were taking everyone captive. And so Habakkuk begins to cry out to the Lord. And he says, Lord, how long shall I cry out? And, and you make me see violence and yet you will not save. And you know what God says? He says, look among the nations and watch and be utterly astounded for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe though it were told you. We want God to answer sometimes. He says, listen, if I explained it to you, you still wouldn't understand. And then he went, he went he, so he did it. He told him, you know what? I'm bringing these, Chal these Chaldeans, these Babylonians along and they're going to they're gonna execute my justice, my wrath on the disobedient people of God for what they've been doing. And exactly what God said came true. Habakkuk said, what? You kidding me? This is the Bosworth paraphrase. He says, oh Lord, my God, my Holy One. He says, you're more just than that. How can you look with satisfaction on this evil people to use them to judge someone else? That doesn't make any sense. But here's the way he ended. But I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch and see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. And so the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision, make it plain on the tablets that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time. In the end, it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come and will not tarry. 
Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. That's quoted over and again in the, Old, in the New Testament, isn't it? The just will live not by what they see, but by faith. And what God is calling Job to, what he was calling Habakkuk to, what he's calling us to, is to draw near to him so that we can see beyond what these physical eyes can see, to see him. To catch the vision. Though it tarries, he says, wait for it, for it will surely come to pass. And we get the benefit of now turning to the book of Revelation, to the end of the whole story and seeing the end. You ever get so stressed out in a story that you just got to see the end? That's a big debate in our house. You know, don't tell me the end. No, no, I got to see. Is he still going to be alive or is he going to, what's going to happen? But when you get really stressed out, if you could just know the end, it can set you at ease, can't it? I, okay, I can handle the stress of the story now because I know how it's going to end. And you know, what we have before us in the word of God is the end of the story. Do you know Jesus Christ is your Savior? He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. No temptation has overtaken you, but only what is common to man. And he, God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will also, with the temptation, make a way to escape. In that same passage where he says in 1 Peter 5, I'm going to have to end and come back to the remainder of the story. Forgive me. Um, this evening to see how God brings Job from his bewildered questioning to a place of peace even though his circumstances had not changed is an amazing journey but can I just point out first Peter chapter 5 Peter is speaking to elders like himself seeing the people of God as the sheep of God and he tells them, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Yes, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's you and I today, isn't it? But resist him. Steadfast, not in our sight, in what our eyes and minds can see and figure out, but no, steadfast in the faith knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. We're not alone. But I love the next verse. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered for a while, he says, may God himself perfect, mature, and complete you, establish you, and strengthen and settle you. To settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. This is the secret of the Christian life, brother and sister. Not at erasing the trials of life. You know, I, was, I remember visiting Brother Joe Pamphil a couple months ago. As he was struggling with questions of how to manage his own situation with his wife and what to do. This is his testimony. He said, I used to pray that God would change my circumstances. And he did for so long. But then the day came where God said, stop praying for the circumstances to change and pray for the grace to make it through the circumstances.
And that's when the maturity in our walk with Christ begins to take off. When we are like the disciples there in the boat and the Lord is with us and it appears that He's sleeping and He's not doing anything or doesn't even care. But He knows. And so often we want to wake Him up and say, Lord, don't you care? We're going to die! Sometimes He says, peace, be still. And He calms the circumstances. But sometimes He's waiting with that same question. Where is your faith? You've seen my miracles in the past. You've seen my love for you in the person of Jesus Christ who gave His life on the cross to pay for your sin and my sin. If He was willing to do that, where is our faith now that He saved us? Can we trust Him for this journey? Well, that's our challenge. How did God bring Job to that point we want to look at the rest of the story this evening. Um, but let's consider ourselves as we leave this part of the story as to where we're at. Are our eyes only fixed on the circumstances or are we looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith? Because He will indeed bring us through and take us to His desired end. Well, Father... We would much rather walk by sight. Unfortunately, our eyes are so dim. Not only our physical eyes, we can't see the true world of the spiritual realm that's raging all around us. But Lord, sometimes our spiritual eyes are also dim. Our shield of faith is so small that all the flaming arrows of the evil one just fly right by and get between the chinks of our armor and leave us wounded and suffering. Father, we pray that you would help us. Help your people to look to you, to walk by faith, and to find the grace that you've said is sufficient for all of our trials, that we might run with endurance the race that is set before us, that you might, as it says in Hebrews chapter 11, that you were not ashamed to be called their God because they put their trust in you, that you would not have reason to be ashamed of us being called by the name of your Son, because we have learned to trust you and to walk with you day by day. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.